I think I'm, I'm not really capable of doing um, a head note recipe dish, head note recipe dish times 250. I feel that if you are paying $40 for the book, that that's not great value. So I try to add so much more. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Today on the show, we have Meredith Erickson. She's a journalist, cookbook writer, and the co-author of the new book, Joe Beef, Surviving the Apocalypse. Also on the show, we have Smitten Kitchen's Deb Perlman answering a reader question. But Matt, what did you and Meredith talk about? I had a great conversation with Meredith Erickson. Uh, We talked about her many cookbook projects, the Joe Beef books, a book with Le Pigeon in Portland, uh, and a really neat project she's doing, um, which is diving into the food of the Alps. She has written a lot of cookbooks and collaborated on a lot of cookbooks, right? Worked with a lot of chefs. What's her style? What is what is she like as a writer? She compares her approach to like a mixtape, you know, that blend of writing recipes and colorful prose and reporting and jokes and humor. I just think her books are really unique. She compares herself to the way Peter Meehan wrote Momofuku and some of the Lucky Peach books. I think that was a really fair comparison. Uh, I love her style, and I really love her books. Here's Matt talking to Meredith. Hey, Meredith Erickson, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Pleasure. It's great to have you in. I've, I've read many of your books. I've been a fan of your books. Thank you. And, uh, I mean, the, the range in topics is incredible. Uh, you worked with Kristen Kish. You've done the Claridge's book. You've done two Joe Beef books. You're working on an Alpine book, which we, we can talk about. So what draws you to a project? Yeah, um, Curiosity. I would say, learning something completely new, uh, something out of my comfort zone. Um, I mean, Joe Beef, I think, is the only thing really within my comfort zone, you know, Montreal. Uh, And then, you know, as you mentioned, my Alpine book, that's completely, I realized it of everyone's comfort zone because that book doesn't exist. Nothing like it exists. And that's how I ended up doing it because I I just wanted to create Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. But you want to learn, right? Yeah, I want to learn things. Yeah. Uh, tell me, what was the, out of all the books you've worked on and proposals, like what was like uh, a moment when you're like, I don't think I can do this book, but you ended up actually doing it. Was there like a moment like that with any of these? Um, yeah. I mean, my own book, I would say Alps, just because I, when I'm creating these projects, I try to answer all of my worst critics and the biggest questions in my mind. And with the Alps book, there's so much to answer, you know, so if someone like you had been going to Zermatt with your family for 10 years and you knew of all the spots and I felt like if I couldn't answer that or I couldn't include that, that it would be a fail. But then I realized that this was really a primer on the Alps, you know, and it's Austria, Switzerland, France and Italy and uh, 352 pages and we're getting there. But there might be a volume two. There might be, mm-hmm. I don't know, there might be a series. There might be a whole bunch of different kind of spinoffs on, on the Alps. We, uh, it's out in uh, fall of 19, so we've got a little bit of time to wait. Yeah, um, but fall. here uh, at 10 Speed, we had an internal meeting and they talked about it and they said this was like your passion project for, yeah. for, for years and years. I mean, 
what I guess the Alps is you, you mentioned all the countries, but what's the commonality? Is it is it alpine cuisine? Is it has to be at a high elevation? Exactly, it's altitude. Yeah. Um, so it is anything. I had to in the beginning of the book. I define what the boundaries are. So it can't be pre-Alps, which would be Jura, for example. Mm-hmm. It can't be Julian Alps, which would be Slovenia. It has to be the Alpine range, which means you're kind of like in those monster mountains. Uh, you know, starting at above twenty five hundred meters and up. And I don't cover anything under 1,000 meters. That was my somewhat ambiguous uh, yeah. Defined, yeah, definitive point. Are you a cycling fan by chance? Yeah, I'm a huge cycling you fan. You are. I figured. I- <laughs> the Alps, I love um, when the Tour de France goes through the Alps. Yeah. Like, it's like those are the most incredible moments. And I just remember seeing the, the, the helicopters flying around and taking these photos. Yeah, I've always watched. Um, I'm similar to you. I'm a huge tour fan only for the cultural aspect, you know, and then as a byproduct, learned about the sport of cycling. Um in the so I, I would say out of all of the the four chapters in my Alpine book, France w- was the most challenging, because in Austrian cuisine and Northern Italian cuisine is really its own thing, whereas with France you have Paris, you know, and you have a much higher level of sophistication and a much more intense food culture there. Whereas with mountain food, it's um it's much simpler. Um, so what is the thing that sets France apart? And it's the tour. It's cycling that defines it. And so the Perry Brest, you know, all of these, um, the dishes that I chose, there were a lot related to the tour. The Perry Brest is having a huge moment in the United States. I don't know if you know. Tell me. I've seen it. It's on restaurant menus. I think Daniela Galarza wrote a really cool piece for Eater. Oh, cool. And we wrote a piece about shoe, just tying it, tie it together. So I've seen like these long, uh, like love letters to Perry Brest. But I think. I want to know, like, when you, your love of cycling, I mean, is there, like, cuisine that's tied to the actual act of cycling? Um, I mean, the, no. The short answer is no. And when I um, – throughout the book, I have these snapshots, which are kind of cool. And I have um, – so I have, like, Giorgio Moroder, the DJ, who's from the Alps. You know, I have a, um, a lot of um, Alpine downhill gold medalists. And then I have some famous, like, tour cyclists, um, a couple of American guys. And we talk about what they would eat on the tour. And they're just always like, it was disgusting. You know, they'd be staying in a roadside motel. And so if I were going to do a cycling uh, dish, I would make, do, like, a homemade granola bar. You know, I would do like some sort of protein thing that's yeah. not delicious at all. But what I do with the peri breast is I do normal peri breast, fill it with a pistachio uh, oh, yeah. p- a pastry, and then uh, a white meringue, and then tiny um, strawberries. So it's the uh, the mountain um, jersey. The polka oh, dot jersey. Oh, that's such clever. That's clever. Yeah. I can't wait. We 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 we, we got to hold off on talking about because it's know. out in so long. I know. I know. Okay, but, but we'll we'll have you back on when we have that because I can't wait to hold it in my hand and the photos yeah. look beautiful. I think you're gonna like it. Let's move on to Joe Beef. I, I like uh, the we we wrote a big feature on taste about Joe Beef, uh, surviving the apop- apocalypse. You refer to it as a cookbook of sorts. How did you and the and the, your your co-authors come to this idea of of sorts? So um, the first book is a cookbook of sorts. Also, um, the art of living according to Joe Beef, because I think I'm I'm not really capable of doing um, a head note recipe dish head note recipe dish times two hundred and fifty 
I feel that if you are paying $40 for the book, that that's not great value. So I try to add so much more. And I think, I'm not sure who who said it, but when the first Joe Beef cookbook came out, they said that Meredith, similar to what Pete Meehan did with Monfuku, does like these mixtape genre books. So the idea is there's a lot of prose. There's a lot of interlude. In the second, in the Surviving the Apocalypse, we have a bunker centerfold. So let's say the world's going to end tomorrow. Here's what you need to make, the cordials, the hams, the jams that you need to make. Um, so why end up, why, why land on this idea of the end of the world? I mean, it's, is, it, is it a statement about the politics in the world? Or is it a statement about just how we should be thinking about food? Live like you're going to not have another day. Mm-hmm. What is it? How do you come to that? Sure. So there's, there's two kind of answers. The first answer, there's a, two aspects to that answer. There's the cultural internal answer, and then there's a practical answer. I guess in 2015, I had, I had moved back to Montreal from London. And I was at my in my own kind of personal crisis, and I and Fred and David were going through their own thing. You know, uh, Fred famously lost his best friend John Bill, the oyster shucker, to cancer uh, within the last year, and Dave has very publicly been battling, you know, with addiction. So they were going through that, and then in my own life, I was just like, man, looking around. It was the idea of the influencer that was still somewhat new. It was the Kim Kardashians, and I was like, if I want want to have have a family, if I'm going to have daughters, like what I see, I can't relate to at all this superficiality. And I don't like it. And it's not something that, that I value. And, uh, and and I also started questioning if millennials or even my own generation knew how to make anything on their own. And, you know, I was raised on this old house. I was raised on uh, Julia Child. I was raised on, you know, Martha, you know, Norm, Norm Abrams. And um, and I didn't see that around me. And Fred and Dave were the same. And so we said for our book, uh, if we have this – every morning we woke up with a feeling of doom. you know. And this was pre-your election. <laughs> she was relatively OK back then. you know. And uh, so that was the one aspect. And the other aspect is Fred and David have three kids apiece. And they have country homes and they have um, battery like generators yeah, for their rustic. homes. They're rustic and they're, they're preppers. You know, they have uh, closets, you know, full of, of, you know, how to handle the, the end of the world. So there's like a spiritual element and then there's like literally a physical element of being a prepper and you're bringing them both together in this text. Yeah. And so if you, I don't know if you, have you been to Joe Beef? Yeah. Okay. So. Oh, no, no, I haven't. Actually, I tried to go there closed. No, I haven't been to Joe Beef. Okay. Um, sorry, what was the question? I wanted to know just like in general, you have uh, the physical element yeah. and you've got the spiritual the element. element yeah. And what are some dishes then? That reflect that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we have, um, oh, what I was trying to tell you is that Joe Beef, if you've ever been there, looks like a shed. Uh-huh. You know, we say that in, in the book, we say we feel that uh, people from New York come expecting 11 Madison Park and they realize they're in some like, it's like deliverance in <laughs> restaurant form, you know, yeah. and uh, we can see the dis- disappointment in their eyes as they're being shown their table. And so Joe Beef itself, there's a trout pond. There's a smoker. And what happened with the smoker is that um, there's a lot of ash. And through the ash, we made we could make lye. And then through the lye, you can make soap. Um, so it was this, there is sustainability mm-hmm. that practically happens 
at the restaurant every day. There's a craftiness in the, in the cuisine and just the way that it's set up. Yeah. Yeah. And so how to make your own soap. There's um, pine lozenges because, you know, end of the world, what happens if you get sick? Um, there's a prepper kind of prescription. There's Dutch babies because if you're – which is basically a deflated crepe or a deflated pancake, you know, to make for your lover or for your children. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything is easier, I would say, more accessible than the first book. And it's how to live the end of the world mm-hmm. in decadence. No, I really, I, I, it's beautiful. The photos are cool, and there, there is a lot of like, like magazine style sidebars and like really nice writing in it too. And I, you're welcome. I, I really appreciate that in cookbooks because I agree. Like 250 head notes and 250 recipes straight away is not the way to go. Yeah, I mean, people, people buy those books. I mean, you know, people, sure. but I just can't really do that. You split time between Milan and Montreal. What is that like? How do you negotiate these two cultures? I mean, are you going one way more than the other these days? Um, this way, these days, I'm not going anyway because I am finishing, you know, doing this, all this Joe Beef publicity stuff um, and finishing Alpine cooking and working on Frasca. So I'm basically in my home office. So Frasca is your next book. Frasca is my next book yeah. and ties into Milano because um, – I was going from Friuli, which the Fra- Frasca is a restaurant in Boulder, Colorado, owned by Bobby Stucky, and it's based on the food and wine of Friuli, Ven- Venezia, Giulia, the easternmost region in Italy. So I was working with Bobby and Lachlan a lot um, in Friuli and then heading west to the Piedmont Alps to work on my Alpine cookbook. And when I was going through, I met uh, through a mutual friend. I met my boyfriend. Mm. Uh, and so that's how I ended up splitting time. And right. he uh, is like a, used to be an amateur skier. He's very uh, a professional skier. He's awesome. And so that worked with my book. Yeah. And so we split. T- we try to split time. But recently, I'm just kind of all Montreal. And, and he loves it, too, because Montreal's. He comes and visits and there's a little like low, low mountain skiing yeah. around Montreal. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Um, but I love this uh, idea of uh, Frioli and doing a book with the Fresca guys. You have to go listener to Boulder, Colorado, make the pilgrimage. Like yeah. just the wines in- alone at Frasca is amazing, right? Yeah. I mean, I'll take kind of the 20-second pitch about Bobby. You know, Bobby um, is is an old-school sommelier. He was at um, Little Nell in Aspen, and then he was working with Thomas Keller at the French Laundry. And one day he was on his – he's a huge cycling guy, um, you know, knows Lance personally, knows the team personally. And, uh, you know, one day he was cycling home from service, and it was like guys in hazmat suits spraying down vineyards, you know, spraying chemicals. And he was just like, I'm out. I am, And so he's like, I love Friuli. And he was buying, you know, Radicon and buying orange wines, buying natural kind of weird esoteric stuff in the 80s. And uh, he kind of just said, I'm going to move to the middle of nowhere where I can cycle in Boulder, Colorado, and I'm going to devote a restaurant to Friuli food and wine. Yeah, and it's done so well. I mean, Bobby's a, you just got to go there and talk to him about the food. It's really an amazing experience. Yeah, and you know, Vanya, the sommelier at Joe Beef, is one of my closest friends. And, you know, five years ago, we were just like, hmm, you know, especially in, the, in New York, like 
things are rise and fall so quickly here. And Bobby's just been this mainstay in the in the wine world. And I was kind of like, whose list is super cool? Like when I want to look to inspiration to a wine list, who do I look? And it was always the Frosca list. And at the same time, um, luck would have it that Bobby was like, you know, I've been in the business for 25 years and I'm ready to do a book and loved uh, Joe Beef and Le Pigeon and, and Olympia Provisions. So we joined forces. Fun. And t- Meredith, tell me, you, you must have... Uh, chefs knocking on your door all the time mm-hmm. just because of your history and just you're you're a, a great journalist and you, you you capture the spirit of these of these places so well how do you how do you weed it out I mean how do you find your projects yeah um, I mean I think it goes back to the curiosity you know pure curiosity I can't yeah and I can't really in good faith create something that I kind of already see is in the market yeah. you know with uh, Alpine cooking is coming out October 2019. Frost is coming out spring 2020, and then I'm taking like a mini break. That shit comes fast. Like I've been <laughs> in the cycle myself. We're yeah, our first taste book, which hasn't been announced. Oh, awesome. um, and like it comes fast. It sounds like a long time, but yeah, it's not. It's not. Yeah, and you're just you're caught up in that cycle, you know. And uh, I think um, I want to take a little pause. What are you gonna do? <laughs> During the pause, yeah, I'm gonna. I mean, I'm gonna enjoy Italy. Yeah, I'm gonna take advantage of all the things I haven't been able to do yet. Um, I'm gonna. My my boyfriend's a great. He's great sailor on boats, so we're gonna do Amalfi on a boat for a bit. We're gonna. I'm gonna take a proper three to four month break. And you know, when you take breaks in in those quiet moments, it's that's when you kind of inspiration begins to percolate. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm really welcoming that instead of kind of just racing to the finish line yeah i mean i i want i want you to start writing for taste will you please write a story for taste i would love to i would love to have you uh contribute i would love to for sure thank you meredith for joining the taste pocket you're welcome thank you here's deb perlman answering a reader question Deb, what's something that you know how to cook now, but you wish you had known how to cook in college? All right. This is probably a weird thing to mention, but I always, like, one of my comfort foods was always, like, spaghetti with marinara sauce. And I was really intimidated by turning a can of tomatoes into tomato sauce. I don't know why, because it seems so simple. But, you know, if you try it and you don't really know what you're doing, you end up with this, like, watery, chunky, flavorless tomato sauce. So it's just, it's really simple, but I didn't know how to do it. And I actually really wished I did. I did not want to be eating Prego or whatever else it was. Sorry. What's the tomato sauce recipe that you would give to college, Deb? I would tell you to just like crush up a couple of cloves of garlic and use some pepper flakes and cook them in olive oil for just like a minute. Get a little like barely golden color on them. Add a can of crushed tomatoes, a good amount of salt, and then just cook it together for know 15 minutes or so to get it saucy if they're crushed you don't have to wait for them to break down as much and then you can just add you could throw in some basil and like pull it out for a little bit of that like summery flavor but i actually just feel like you're going to get what you want just from that maybe an anchovy mm-hmm. college dev would have been like Ew. Yeah, yeah. College dev, yeah college dev did not know what was up with anchovies she was wrong <laughs> The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. 
visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening.